a little bit of an introduction here. We're partway into a series, and uh, the elders and leadership at Martinsdale have thought it good and helpful to do six weeks talking about and, and trying to encourage, trying to call us to, that with the commitment that the New Testament calls us to make to a local church. Um, you see the points sort of from review from last week. We, last week we looked at that the, the metaphors used to describe the church assume a real commitment, um, that all Christians are called to commit themselves to a local church. And then we looked also at the notion of the local church cannot properly function without self-awareness. And what I mean is, is if the church is a family, well, how many of you have any questions about who's in your physical family? If the church is a body, how, how many here are unaware how many fingers, how many toes they have? Bodies and families don't function when... There's a lack of self-awareness, and we saw in Scripture that the church, to do the ministry it needed to do, required some notion of self-awareness. And the final reason we gave last week why that was so was because there are peculiar and unique and distinct relationships that believers have in a local church that they have nowhere else, and responsibilities. And this morning, and for the next Three Sundays, this morning and the following two, we're going to look at those relationships. This morning, I want to look at our relationships and responsibilities to one another. If we are part of a local church, if we are part of a local body, then what relationships do we have? What responsibilities do we have to and for each other that go above and beyond those of other Christians, those of our neighbors, our country, and this world? Next week, we are going to hear from our own Al Ostrander about the responsibility of the leaders, the shepherds, the pastors, the elders for the flock. And that's a peculiar responsibility. We have a responsibility for you that I don't have for the church down the street. You, you see that easily, right? Shepherds are responsible for their flock. And thirdly, Pastor Daniel will speak to us on this flock's responsibility in relationship to the shepherds. So that's the next three weeks. Now, you'll notice there are a lot of Scripture references in these notes, and I don't expect you to all turn to every single one of them. You are welcome to follow along, especially if you have a digital Bible. Um, it'll be easy. There will be a couple that I'll ask you to turn to, but for the most part, you can look them up. I don't expect you to follow along, but I, I, I need to read these passages to, to make it clear just how wonderful and yet how serious and weighty our responsibility is to one another. So let's dive in, membership matters, our relationships and responsibilities to one another. What I want to do this morning is look at two of many biblical metaphors for the church. We saw three last week, the metaphor of a family, the metaphor of a body, the metaphor of a town or a country. There's also the metaphor, agricultural ones, of a vine. We're just going to look at the church as family and the church as a body this morning. So first, we are a family. We are a family. And the blank here is this. We must recognize the reality and priority of our relationships. This is my heart this morning. You understand the reality and the priority of our relationships, of our responsibilities one to another that exceed and rise above those of our community, those of all Christians everywhere, those even, we'll see, of our own physical, earthly families. And that what the New Testament is calling us to do in, in, in joining and uniting with the church is not to attend 
It's not even to give of oneself, but to give oneself wholly, to commit, to unite oneself to a family. That, that's what happens in families. When, when members are adopted in, they're fully embraced, fully committed. So Jesus speaks of this reality, of the church as a family, first in Mark 10. And the disciples have just come. Peter has just come. See, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We have abandoned all. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus makes a double promise. Let's work backwards. There's an eternal life that comes from being a disciple of Jesus. There's an eternal reward that comes from following Jesus. But Jesus also speaks of a reward now, in the here and now. And it's rather specific. He says you'll receive now, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands. Now, where is that to be fulfilled? I know people who, because of their following of Christ, have had to forfeit some of their earthly relationships, relationships with children, relationships with parents, relationships with husbands and wives that are weak or in some cases non-existent because of our discipleship to Jesus. What do we say to these people? There are people who come, I know, people who come this morning even, with strained and alienated relationships precisely because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises them, this is good news, this is good news on a, on a Mother's Day Sunday that in the church, I believe in the church, we'll see in the church, the fulfillment is in the church, you'll receive mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. If, if you come here and you don't have those earthly relationships intact, in the local church, you will have mothers and fathers. In the local church, you'll have sons and daughters. In the local church, you'll have brothers and sisters. Jesus makes this point even more clearly in Matthew 12. He's teaching his disciples, and his mother and his brothers show up. And we know from John's gospel that at this point, Jesus' brothers are not yet believers. And they say, teacher, rabbi, master, your family is here. While he was still speaking, to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now get that. Jesus is saying the, the familial relationship that comes from being followers of Christ supersedes, at least in his perspective, supersedes earthly familial relationships. Get that radical priority. Hey, Jesus, your mother, your brothers are outside. Well, we know at least his brothers at this point are not believers. We know that from John 7. He says, here, here, here are my mother, my brothers. And then, in John's gospel, in John 19, when Jesus is on the cross... After he's taught his disciples, after he has loved them to the full, according to John. It says in John 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, 
And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want you to get the radicalness of what Jesus has just done. In, in, in even our culture today, but even more so in a Jewish culture, if the firstborn son dies, whose job it is to care for the parents, who does the job fall upon? The next brother. We know Jesus had at least one other brother, James, and we're pretty sure Jude was as well. Jesus has brothers. Mary has sons. Mary's a believer at this point. Mary's a Christian. And Jesus assigns her care not to her physical family, but to her spiritual family. Because in the church, John has a new mother here. And I want you to take that impact because this is, days like Mother's Day can be really challenging for some people. For some, it's a wonderful time. Your memories are delightful. Your mother's still alive. Others are grieving the the loss of mothers or or grieving the type of mothers, the, the relationships they have are broken relationships or people desiring to be mothers and and struggling with that. And so it can be, it can be a, a mixed bag of people rejoicing and people struggling, which is why I rejoice that whatever your familial and your physical relationship with your mother is, whatever your physical and familial relationship with being a mother is, listen now to this reality incarnated in 1 Timothy 5 where Paul, and he's already called the church, the household, the family of God. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men, brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. How are we to relate to each other? How are we to relate to one another as a family? Is this just hyperbole? Is this just a nice word picture? No, Jesus insists the family relationships we share as a church body trump, supersede even our familial relationships. And this is to govern how we act. And so it's no surprise in Titus 2, what are the older women doing? They're mothering the younger women. They're teaching them how to love their husbands and wives and children. The The body, this is a reality. This isn't just nice things we say, my church family. This is a reality. And the Bible is calling us to embrace this reality. And of course, if you're part of a family, you're giving yourself to the family. You're committing yourself to the family. And the family knows who the family is. The family knows who the family is. Now, this goes against our American consumer culture. We, we like consumerism. We like the fact that the, the customer is always right. Consumerism protects me. I go someplace for what I get from it. I like the teaching. I like the youth program. I like the music. I like the time of the worship service. And what the Bible is calling for in this notion of family is something radically and stark different. So we're happy to come and to hear. We're happy to serve. But we always reserve the right to pull back, the right to move on, the right to do something else. In a very, very helpful book, Jonathan Lehman writes this quote, Yes, we may listen to others, defer to others, accept guidance from others. But in the final analysis, we view ourselves as our own coaches, 
our own portfolio managers, our own guides, our own judges, and the captains of our own ship in a manner that is more cultural than biblical. In short, an underdeveloped theology conspires with our anti-authority and individualistic instincts to deceive us into claiming that we love all Christians everywhere equally while excusing ourselves from loving any of those specifically and essentially and submissively that are in front of us. Unsurprisingly, the churches are shallow, Christians are weak, and God's people look like the world. Now get that. That's, that's the deceptive thing. We, we can think all sorts of warm and fuzzy thoughts about how we feel about Christians everywhere. And you can watch videos of the horrible treatment of Christians under ISIS, and your heart can, can, can cry out, But God has given us a local family with which to live out his commands. And I want to suggest to you that how we do that and how seriously we embrace that will show the reality of what you think about the church universal. It's far, far too easy to think warm, happy, sincere thoughts about the universal church and hold the local church in contempt. God has given us a practical space with which to live out the body, to demonstrate our familyhood. And our willingness to embrace that and be part of a real family demonstrates the seriousness with which we take this. Which moves us on now to our second point. First, we've got to recognize the reality and the priority. This is real. This is important. We must love and care for one another. We must love and care for one another. Must love and care for one another. Now, sure, in general, we are called to love all people everywhere. In general, we are certainly told to care for our neighbors and our, and, and our community. But one of the things that's important, once you get this family notion, is that we must love and care for each other. You see, I, I must love all of you, in a sense, in the general sense, but there's a specific sense in which I must love my wife. And there's a sense in which I need to look out for the welfare of everyone in general. I must look after the welfare of my children. You get how the family dynamic brings an obligation. So sure, we are to love and care for everyone we meet. In a general sense, go, go do that. That's a good thing. We must, we must love our family. And I want you just to stop for a moment. Just look around. I want everyone to look around for a moment. Just look, you can look. I can see if you're looking around or not. Okay, you do realize that. Just want you to look around, and I want you to behold your sons and your daughters and your brothers and your sisters, your fathers and your mothers. As many here who have committed themselves to the church, we are a family, and we must care and we must love for each other. And here's the point I want you to get. What this forces upon us is normally when we pick our friends, we pick people that's easy to love, that we get something back from, for loving. Jesus talks about this. You have dinner parties, but then they invite you to your, their dinner parties. We have a concrete group of people that we need to love. And let's face it, some of the people in this room, some of your family in this room bug you. Some of the people in this room you find difficult to love. And that's the point. The point in families is we have to love each other no matter what parents tell us their children. Your, your brothers, your sisters, you got to get along. you got to love each other. That's what we need to feel. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, the night before he dies. Turn, turn to John 17 with me. Turn to John 17. I want you to see this. This is powerful. This is powerful stuff. John 17, it's the night before he dies, he goes out and he prays. And first he prays for himself. 
in the first section of the prayer. Then he prays for his disciples. But finally, in verse 20, and amazingly, he prays for us. This is the first prayer that's forward-looking. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I want to grasp that. Do you think Jesus had in his mind us as well as all other believers everywhere? He's God, yes. You and I can't hold that many people in mind at one time, but the, the, the Lord Jesus can. He has us in mind. He has, I like to think even our meeting this morning in mind. He's praying. He's praying. What's his prayer, verse 21? That they may all be one. To, to what level, to what degree, what level of unity, Jesus? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus gives us a standard by which to measure our unity. It's the unity of the Trinity. And then he gives us a so what? Well, why? Why are you so concerned about this, Jesus? This is how the world is going to know that God the Father sent the Son, is by our unity and love. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may no longer, that they may be one even as we are. Again, the oneness, the standard, the Trinity. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have sent me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. What's, what's Jesus' prayer? This is, by the way, an, get this, an unanswered prayer. It is yet to be seen to what degree or to what extent this prayer of our Lord will be answered. Why? Because there are people still becoming believers. This is a forward-looking prayer, and it is yet to be fully seen the degree to which our Lord's prayer will be answered. And here's the amazing thing. You and I get some participation in whether or not Jesus' prayer gets answered yes or no by our willingness to engage in loving one another as a family. This is, this is heavy stuff. This is, this is what our Lord is on his heart. And, and, and what this means then is there's no room in the church family for I love you but I don't like you. I hear that. I've heard that a little bit here. I've heard that in other churches. And people say that like they think that's a valid category. Well, you know, I love them but I don't like them. Let's try that with the Trinity. Let's, let's try plugging that into Jesus' prayer here. And it gets blasphemous as you consider the, poss the, the blasphemous possibility that some member of the Trinity might think of another member of the Trinity. I love him, but I don't like him. One also has to wonder how I love him, but I don't like him is somehow supposed to convince the world of our supernatural love, as if anyone has ever been impressed. You know, how on earth do you people love but not like each other? God must truly be among you because you like, but you love, but don't like each other. No, what's going to impress the world is when people from different social economic statuses, different races, different backgrounds, different ages get together and love each other. Why would a slave and a free, a Jew and a Greek, Jesus' disciples consisted of a zealot who was a terrorist trying to overthrow the Roman government and Matthew, a tax collector who was a complete sellout to the state. And they're coexisting. Now that's impressive. The world is not going to be impressed if you love people just like you. The world will be impressed by our love and unity as it crosses boundaries, 
as it's difficult. There's nothing supernaturally required for, I love you, but I don't like you. There is supernatural power required to love people, to actively love people that you find hard to love, that grate your nerves. You must love and care for one another. And this love shows itself in action and in deeds. 1 John 3, 17 to 18. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. And this gets back to that challenge, which is that it's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking, I love Christians. You watch the videos of the terrible treatment of our brothers and sisters overseas. And yet, it's easy to love in, in, in word. And God has given us a concrete, marked out, specific place in which we are to show our love indeed. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. This is a much known passage about love. It shows up at weddings, it shows up on greeting cards. And yet I think it is very much misunderstood in most instances. Very much misunderstood. I want you to think while you're turning of the context of Corinth. Corinth is in shambles. First three chapters are dedicated to dealing with divisions. People are, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of Jesus. And he has to deal with all that. Three chapters. And then he deals with the guy who's having an affair with his stepmom. And the whole church is standing by because we're so tolerant, we're so non-judgmental. In chapter 6, believers are suing each other. Other believers are visiting prostitutes because, after all, it's just my body and my spirit's holy, but my body has these desires. In seven, he's got the reverse problem. There's married people who are living celibately because that's more holy. In eight, he's got people going to idols' temples and using their liberty and their freedom to, to, to cause their brothers to stumble. Then you've got people who are going to the Lord's table and getting drunk and not even waiting for everyone to show up. By the way, somehow they knew when everyone had shown up. Don't miss that. And, and then we get to chapter 12, where you've got all these different parts of the body, and the problem comes out again, which is, I want to like people like me. I want to be around people who value what I value and have my interests. And, and so Paul has to rebuke them. We'll get to this later about the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And don't forget, chapter 14 is all about the, the clash between the spiritual one-upmanship with the people who have tongues and the people who have prophecy, and we're better and no, you're better, and all of this conflict. And chapter 13 sits right in the middle of that. I want you to get the context. He is saying to a squabbling church, he is saying to a divided church, he is saying to a church with all sorts of problems, because that's, of course, the excuse we use. You know, I would put up with it, of course. It's just, it's, it's not right. Well, there'd be nothing to put up with if it wasn't right. If it was right, first off. Second of all, I don't care what church you're going to. I don't think it's as bad as Corinth. There's even people in chapter 15 denying the physical resurrection. And Paul is dealing with it. He's not looking the other way. He's one by one. He's fixing their wagons. But in the midst of Paul correcting them and admonishing them, he said, you guys got to love each other. You guys got to love each other. You guys have got to stop quarreling. Love each other. And that's where 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give all that I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. He's saying this to people who are quarreling and in factions. Jonathan Lehman, again, in this very helpful book, The Surprising Offense of God's Love, says this about this passage. I want you to get this. As he sets the context of 1 Corinthians 13, it's in this context, he writes, that Paul grabs back the pretty lyrics of 1 Corinthians 13 from the wedding party and reads it to the local church. Do you want, he asks, to exercise, practice, enact, embody, and define the glorious love of heaven? then do it in a local church. A church where factions are pitted against one another, where people have big heads, where members are sleeping with their father's wives, where members are suing and defrauding one another, where members are getting drunk at communion and not leaving enough for others, where the spiritual gift one-upmanship is rife, where the meetings are threatened with disorder, where some are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Bind and submit yourself and your gifts to these Kinds of people. Love them with patience and kindness, without envy or boasting, without arrogance or rudeness, not insisting on your own way, not irritably or resentfully, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing at the truth. People often complain about the sinners they find in the local church, and with good reason. It's filled with sinners, which is why Paul tells Christians to love one another by bearing all things. Believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. If you won't love such backstabbers and defrauders like this, then don't talk about your spiritual gifts or your vast biblical knowledge or all the things you do for the poor. You're just a noisy gong. Don't talk about your love for all Christians everywhere. You're just a clanging symbol. But if you do practice loving a specific concrete people whose names you don't get to choose, then you will be participating in defining love for the world, a love which will characterize the church on the last day perfectly because it images the self-sacrificing and merciful love of Christ perfectly. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. It's about loving the hard to love. It's loving the people in the other clique, the other group. It's about loving each other in truth and in deed and not in word only. Um, we don't have time to look at Hebrews 10, but even loving each other, thinking of how to encourage and spur each other on. We must love and care for one another. Genuinely, as though a family, and not just the ones it's easy to love. Point C, we must strive for peace and unity with one another. And this, this piggybacks off our Lord's own prayer for our unity Because, of course, if we're going to love each other, there will be conflict. Because, again, we're sinners. It'd be wonderful if there wasn't conflict. There will be. People will sin against each other. People will have their their feathers in a tiss. I didn't really get that metaphor right, did I? No. Um, People will have their hair raised, their shackles up. There we go. It's going to happen because we're sinners, which is why we receive... So we must strive, point C, for peace and unity with one another. Now, you know, you know this passage in Philippians. 
But you've got to understand, in each of these letters, Paul is writing to a local church. So in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Jesus says, Father, let them be one. Paul says, complete my joy by being unified. And there's a very practical case Paul has in mind. If you turn over to Philippians 4, this isn't just some abstract advice. You know, just be, be of one mind. He's got a very concrete example. Philippians 4, verse 2. Talking directly to local church members. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syncticity to agree in the Lord. Two women quarreling, because that never happens. It also never happens with men. It never happens. We, we are sinful people. And we, we get on each other's nerves and, and we get in conflict. And Paul entreats the entire church. And then he singles these women up by name. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel through, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's saying, you guys are part of a family. You guys are part of a body. <laughs> Figure it out. And so often we don't want to strive for peace because it's hard. And after all, their fault, not me. And so I'll just find some new place to go. Families don't work that way. At least they shouldn't. Maybe some of you know the pain of having a runaway child. You didn't want to work it out anymore. Maybe some of you have known the pain of growing up in a, in a broken, divorced family where one party, not always the case, frequently didn't want to deal with it anymore. Families get ripped apart when people decide they don't want to work through things anymore, and it's painful. We're called to pursue, to strive peace and for unity. is our Lord's great prayer. It's Paul's great prayer. We've got to work through things, which is why, if you remember our message um, from last summer, talking about dealing with offenses, Leviticus 19 comes into play so significantly here. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is the passage Jesus grabs as his second greatest commandment. What is the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. In its original application, in Leviticus 19, what, he's, what, what it means is don't bear a grudge, don't get angry, don't go away. Go talk to the person. Work it out. Work it out. And it's so hard for us to do these things. Sometimes the peaks of Christian maturity and Christian discipleship are very commonplace but difficult things. What's it mean to love your neighbors yourself? It means to take the time, to take the effort to go work through something. Even if they are a knucklehead. Go work through them. Go work through it. So often, when we have an individualistic consumer mindset, we get offended. Well, I'll go someplace else where I am appreciated. Thank you very much. I'll take my time and my talent elsewhere. But when we do that, we demonstrate we never were truly united to a body. We may attend we may listen, we may help out, but we never gave ourselves. We never truly had a family. We strive for peace and unity with one another. Point D, 
we must be willing to correct and restore one another. This is, again, is where, where things become difficult. We sort of piggyback from Leviticus 19 now to some more direct passages. That because we're a family, your business is my business and my business is your business. And again, people in an individualistic consumer culture don't like this. How often do people say, mind your own business? But if we're a family, and again, we get this because families deal with issues. If we're a family, then my business is your business. My walk and how it's going, my continued discipleship to Christ is very much your business, and your walk is my business. We are given a responsibility to oversee each other's faith, to deal with sin. Luke 17, 3 to 4, says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now again, if, if dealing with grudges is hard, dealing with outright sin is even harder for us. But I want you to get how loving and how kind this is. Because families do this. When somebody's struggling in a family, we talk. Families sometimes have interventions, don't they? Because we recognize your business is my business. We're a family. There's none of this mind your own business mentality in families. Galatians 6, 1 to 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. The spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We must be willing to correct and restore one another. Don't go talk to someone about their sin if you're not willing to help them bear their burden in restoration. That doesn't give us an excuse not to go. It just means we've got to be committed to the long haul. I'm not just going to try to show you what I think is wrong, but I'm willing to help restore. I'm willing to help bear that load. James, to speak of just what a high priority this, James 5, 19 to 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These, these are the reasons people don't want to join churches and commit themselves to churches because I, I, I like to keep a little buffer zone. I like to keep a little distance. And I'll be happy to give you that same buffer zone, that same distance, and I'll see you on Sunday, and I'll tip my hat, and I'll say, good to see you. And we'll sing some songs together, and then we'll go our merry way. I, I get how that's appealing. What the New Testament is calling us to is something so much more radical, so much more real. And, and you get benefit from it because who doesn't want a family? Who hasn't felt the pain of, of losing broken relationships in a family? And yet here, no matter what type of family history you have, no matter what type of family background you come here with, you can be part of a true family where you can be someone's brother or sister, mother or father, son or daughter. But we've got to act like a family. We've, we've got to recognize the reality, the priority. We've got to love and care for one another. We've got to strive for peace and unity. And we must be willing to correct and restore each other. Because we're a family. Now briefly, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to look, fill in some gaps here. A lot of the metaphors for the body overlap each other. But there is some distinct points that can be made. And in 1 Corinthians 12... I just want to look briefly at one passage. We won't be flipping around, I promise you. 1 Corinthians 12, at a second biblical metaphor. What is our relationship and responsibility to one another? We are a family. We're also a body. We're also a body. We're just going to pick it up in verse 12. 
1 Corinthians 12. Again, talking to that feuding, quarreling bunch. In fact, this is the very passage that sets up, leads into 1 Corinthians 13. For just as, in verse 12, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In fact, keep your thumb here. Go back to 11. It's in the same book, so I'm not changing my mind, Daniel. It's in the same page in my Bible, in fact. Keeping my word, keeping my word. Look at, look at verse, um, look at chapter 11, verse, um, I believe it is 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. Nope, it's not 8. It's verse 22. Nope, it's not that either. Um, <laughs> wow. There it is, verse 18. Okay. First Corinthians 11, 8. Just notice this one little phrase. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. Isn't that wonderful? We come together as a church. That's it. We can go back to 12 now. But that's why we talk about ourselves as the church that meets in Martinsdale. Because we're not the church till we come together. You're not the church by yourself in your house. You come together as the church. We become the church when we come together. Only as we gather together do we become the bride of Christ. Now, individually, Paul says here, you're a member of the church. There's that word, membership. But only when we gather together are we the church. For one body does not consist of one member, but of many. So, four points here to be made quickly. First, point A, our diversity is our strength. Our diversity is our strength. This goes against consumerism. I want you to read it. What's so easy for us is I want a church of people just like me. And so we end up with, with you know, black churches and white churches. We end up with, with churches that focus around certain groups, trades. And let's just face it, it would be a whole lot easier if I could just gather together with a bunch of people just like me. We could all talk about things we're all interested in because we all share the same interests. And we all could do the same things because we have the same hobbies. And Paul insists the diversity of the church, the fact that there are not people just like you here, the fact there's some pretty strange people, at least that you think strange, don't worry, they think you're kind of weird too, it's okay. <laughs> um, the diversity is our strength, verses 15 to 20. Paul couldn't be more clear. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. First, let me speak to you. If you, if you feel out of place here, don't. It's tempting to look around and see people and, oh, wow, they're dressed a certain way, or, wow, they all look a certain way, or, oh, wow, they're driving a certain car. I don't know if I fit in here. And Paul anticipates that. I'm different from them. He says, because the hand, I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? the whole body or an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? A body's strength, a body's usefulness comes precisely from its diversity. If all you were was one big foot, how would you eat? How would you get around? No, our, our 
the, the power, the blessedness, the glory is, is the diversity. That I have parts of me that move, and I have parts of me that can pick things up, and I have parts of me that can say things, and I have parts of me that can look at things. And they work together in harmony. Our diversity is our strength. So that means then that the person that you're thinking of, the person you've got in your mind, who they're kind of, I don't know what they're doing here. I don't know why we need them. We might be tempted to think I'd be better off. No, that's our strength. Rejoice that everyone's not like you. It would not be a healthy body if it were the body of the eyes, the body of the teeth. Our diversity is our strength. Point B, piggybacking off that, Paul moves on to make the point that it's the Lord himself who has personally arranged the body. I want you to understand this. Look at verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So again, if you're tempted to think you might not belong here, you might not fit in, or worse yet, that that person does, certainly doesn't belong here, understand you're sitting in judgment of the Lord himself. The Lord apportioned out and arranged the body as he saw fit. The Lord understood and gave us however many eyes we needed, however many toes we needed, and however many fingers we needed. And who are you and who am I to say, we don't need that member? Thank you very much. Or maybe they're converse. If only we had some more eyes. You think the Lord doesn't know what he's doing? When he arranges the members as he chooses. He says it again down in verse 24. Which are more presentable parts do not require. God has so composed the body. God has composed the body. God has arranged the body. God has brought you here. And if you think you don't belong, or if you think the person next to you doesn't belong, you are sitting in judgment of the Lord's Wisdom. The Lord arranges the body. Which brings us to point C. We need each other. We need each other. If we're truly a body, if we're truly interconnected, if we're truly members of one another, as Paul says in Romans 12, and if the Lord has, has in his wisdom and in his goodness arranged it perfectly, keeping in mind that you're here and that you're here and that you're here, I'm going to arrange it this way. It doesn't surprise us what Paul says then in verses 21 to 24. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts that seem to be weaker are what? indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. We need each other. I need you. You need me. Bodies don't function without all the parts. And God says, if you're tempted to think that some part of the body is, is unimportant, the more detestable it is, the more the parts of the body that seem weaker, verse 22, are indispensable. I would suggest to you it's precisely the parts that we might judge as unimportant, that are most important. Maybe you think, I don't fit in here, I don't belong, this isn't for me, I'm not like these people. You're precisely the person we need. Maybe we, you're precisely the person we need. We need each other. Look up in verse 7 of this chapter. Part of the reason we need each other is that Christ has given to each, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what purpose? Self-edification? 
So you can use your spiritual gifts to build yourself up? No, 1270, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means my good. That means your good. I need you. The body needs you. You've got a gift for the common good. We're going to be lacking that gift. If anyone here has ever stubbed a toe or had a part of their body not working function properly, you know how difficult it can be. You know, we should have like national my neck's not sore day because every time my neck's sore, I'm just like, oh, please make this go away. You know what I'm talking about? You wake up and you get that crick in your neck and it's just, it feels like someone's jabbing a screwdriver into the base of your skull whenever you twist it the wrong way. When my body's not working properly, I am painfully aware of it. Right? And if we're not functioning properly as a body, we could be like that. We need each other. Which brings us finally, verses 25 to 27, that if we're actually truly a body, if we're actually interconnected, if we believe that the Lord has arranged us and brought you here and arranged the body as he sees fit, we understand we need each other, then we will suffer and rejoice together as one. We will act in unity. Bodies work properly when they're acting in unity that there may be no division, verse 25, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I said this before last week, but if I, if I drop something on my foot and crush my toe, I hurt Every part of me hurts. If I cut myself in my hand, my feet are very willing to get me to the bathroom to get the Band-Aid. My feet don't say, it's not us who's cut. You can get yourself there. <laughs> right? Right? Your body works together because the, the feet understand we're in pain. Body suffers together. And like I said last week, after Thanksgiving dinner, you've had, you've had your Thanksgiving feast and you're sitting down on the couch and the, 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 the game's on. I'm sure I've been told this is a good experience. Um, and you're sitting there and you go, ah. You don't say, my stomach feels good. You say, I feel good. Because you're a body. We suffer and rejoice together. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said here. But this is what I want us to grasp. This is what we're trying to raise the elevation of the understanding. We have a commitment to each other, to love each other. We must love each other as a family. We must work as a body. Yes, we're called to love everyone as our brothers and sisters. Yes, we're called to, to, to do this to everyone, but we must do it here. God has given us a practical, concrete, cordoned-off area of the world for you to do this in. And there's no use kidding yourself into thinking, oh, I love Christians everywhere. If you won't love the knuckleheads who are here, You know, one of, the, one of the documents you have in your, in, your, in your handout, your flyer, is our commitment to walk together. And we're not going to read it right now, but I'd encourage you to read it. It was our attempt, weak attempt at best, I understand, to try to categorize those things. If you want to know what are our responsibilities for each other, here's our best attempt with the footnotes to the Scripture of what those are, what we think it means to walk together as a local body, what we think our responsibilities are to one another, this is our understanding of that. I'd encourage you to look through that, to, to read that. Being part of a church is so much more than coming to a meeting on Sunday morning and checking out. 
And it's so much more even than coming to a meeting on Sunday morning and maybe helping out with some other thing throughout the week. It's about giving yourself to a body of people who are giving themselves to you. It's about becoming truly part of a family, a family with, with blessed relationships and privileges and responsibilities. It's about being part of a vitally functioning body that's working together. And it's about being obedient to the Lord and obeying and trusting him and walking with eyes of faith even if our eyes of sight don't see it. This is what God has called us to do in Join Local Church. This is, we know many of you have done this. This is what we are calling. If you haven't made this type of commitment, if you're an attender, if you're sitting on the sidelines, we didn't call you. Be part of a family. Be part of a body. We'd love to know about that. But there'll be more about that in coming weeks. These are our relationships and responsibilities to one another. To be truly a family, to be truly a body. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you would give us the grace and the faith with which to believe what you have said to be true. That we would act upon it, not because we see it first and foremost, but because you have declared it to be so. That we would incarnate this reality with our faith and our deeds. That we would more and more be that household of God, that family of faith. That we would treat those or older than us as our mothers and fathers in Christ, as, as our peers as brothers and sisters, and that we would look around us and truly see and truly interact with and truly treat each other as our family. That you would find mothers for the motherless, fathers for the fatherless, children for the barren here in your body. That we would serve and love each other. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that we are necessary. We are essential. You have ordered us. The, the arrangement of our body is not haphazard, coincidental, random. There's a mind at work. There's a plan at work. And you bring each and every one of us to faith, and you bring each and every one of us here. Help us to embrace that, not to despise each other, but to see each other as necessary, essential, valuable, useful, we'd work together in unity as a body should, that we would love each other, not just in word, but also in deed. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Lord keep you. Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.